Welcome to another episode of UCU Campus Chats, University College Utrecht. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the tutors and assistant professors at UCU, and I'm here today with Josiane White. Um, hi, Josiane, would you care to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, uh, my name is Josiane, and I'm an assistant professor of linguistics um, uh, at UCU. I'm an instructor of linguistics courses and a tutor as well. Uh, and also an alumnus from yes. 2013. So you've seen UCU from both sides. Yeah, for yeah, definitely. Okay, and you're British and Dutch, right? I am. Yeah, I was born in England, uh, in North London, the dodgy end of North London, <laughs> okay. and um, uh, but we we moved to the Netherlands when I was 11, uh, and I learnt Dutch then and went to Dutch high school uh, after that. Uh, yeah. Okay. And and what was the transition like for you to come from the UK to the Netherlands? Because they're quite different cultures in some ways. Yeah, they're pretty different. It was uh, surprisingly easy. Um, when I grew up in the in the UK, my parents both spoke English to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they decided very early on. I mean, I was born in the early nineties, and they decided early on that uh, at the time bilingualism research said that if you spoke multiple languages to your kids that would confuse them and so they just decided to speak English to me and my sister Um, and so I didn't really know a lot about Dutch or about the Netherlands um, until we moved and we weren't really a part of the conversation of moving either they just one day told us we're moving (laughs) and some people think that's a weird decision on their part but to me it was kind of great because I never really thought that much about it I was just like oh okay we're moving (laughs) and uh it made it a lot easier for for me to just sort of be told this is what's happening we're gonna go um but yeah in the Netherlands uh all you want as a 10 year old child is to fit in and play outside with the other kids and so learning Dutch was number one priority and it went pretty quick because you don't really have any other options when you're that young. It just sort of goes. And um, I just really wanted to have friends and be normal. Uh, and so it just went really kind of fluidly. I didn't really think that hard about it. Um, I don't really remember struggling too much other than trying to learn vocabulary as quickly as possible Um, but yeah I learned most of it from the football pitch from standing at the back of the football (laughs) pitch talking to the goalie Uh, I wasn't very good at football but I was a decent defender and uh, the goalkeeper would teach me words um, as I hung out at the back of the pitch so uh, yeah it was a weird time (laughs) (laughs) And because when you went to UCU, you, of course, went again to um, a full English environment. Why did you choose uh, UCU? Yeah, I I think I always felt a little bit English, even when I was in Dutch secondary school. Yeah. And I spoke English with my dad. My dad's British and uh, I've always spoken English with him. And so I, th- I sort of knew I wanted to do an English spoken program. It was still a little bit more comfortable for me. Um, and I 
really wanted something that was going to be a bit of a challenge and where I could do different fields. So I knew I wanted to do something with neuroscience and I wanted to try out psychology alongside it, the classic combination. Yeah. Um, and UCU allowed me to do that and also allowed me to go on exchange. My yeah. parents traveled a lot when they were younger. They traveled for about 13 years and I always grew up hearing their stories of different countries. And so all I wanted was to go abroad. Yeah. And so going to UCU, doing an English spoken program where I could do different fields and could go on exchange was like the perfect combination for me. Um, so it worked out really well. Uh, sorry, why neuroscience? Because that's not, it's, it's not a subject in high school usually. Yeah. So how did you find that? How were you exposed to that? I... Uh, I think I was always kind of fascinated by the brain. We did a, a, a little module in high school about, about the brain at some point. And I just remember thinking this is fascinating. This black box of, uh, of chaos that we have in our heads is, is such an interesting thing. Like I remember thinking this is so fascinating how we can do more simple things like sensation and from a more kind of biological perspective, but also how that same set of wires can do things like personality and like emotions and memories. And um, yeah, even though it was just a tiny, tiny little module in in secondary school, I always thought that's amazing and I, I, I want to do that. Um, but at the time, I thought I really would do the more classic neuroscience yeah. psychology route. And that didn't happen. What what changed uh, your that life? didn't happen? What happened was um, at the time when I got to UCU, um, it was the case that tutors would put their tutees into courses manually. Yeah. And when you were new, you had a meeting with your tutor, and then your tutor said, "Oh, well, I saw in your file that you have these interests." And so I've put you in these courses or I'll put, I put you in these, yeah. what would you like your yeah. third option to be? So I arrived at uh, the lovely Alexis Aronowitz's office yes. on my first day. And uh, she said to me, uh, so I put you in neuroscience and psychology yeah. as you requested, um, but we need a fourth course for you. Yeah. Um, and there's not a lot of space left, but there's a spot in this course called linguistics. Yeah. It's about language. You want to do something with the brain. Could be fun. The teacher's really cool. Yeah. So maybe that would be an option. And I didn't really care. I just didn't want to make a fuss. And so I was like, yep, sounds great. That sounds lovely. Sure that I wasn't going to continue with it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, whatever. And uh, <laughs> then I showed up to the linguistics course the next week after the intro week. And uh, Rosemary Orr was the teacher and this she taught for, you know, an hour and a half in her wonderful Irish accent. And I thought this is absolutely fascinating <laughs> and <laughs> this is what I want to do. And I had a bunch of questions yeah. and I went up to her at the end of the class and I said, can I ask you some questions? And she said, yeah. And I asked her one question and she said, listen, sausage. I think you'll find that in linguistics, the answer is pretty much always, it depends. And then <laughs> like she said, economics. I'll see you on Thursday. <laughs> and then she left. And I was left with the, all my questions. And she's 
she was right. Like the answer to this day is still, it depends. But I was completely sold after that. And I thought I'm going to be a linguist. Uh, I'll still do neurosciences, psychology on the side, but um, it's linguistics. Um, and it still is. Wow, there you go. Yeah. It's maybe for context also for those that are listening. Um, when you are admitted to UCU, we ask you to give us eight courses that you would like to take in your first semester. And then based on that, you are registered for courses. And it used to be the case that tutors did that registration. Now it's the admissions office, actually. So in both cases, it is someone from staff who does it. But which courses you get, of course, depends on time slots. It depends on availability of spaces. Um, and all, and that may mean indeed that if you give us courses that are very desired or are all in conflicting time slots, that you end up in a course that you didn't ask for. But we try to make sure indeed that uh, it's something we think you will enjoy, which luckily happened in your case. Yeah. And 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 bilinguistics, because you do mention, of course, um, the, the bilingual experience that you had yourself with having to acquire a, a new language for daily life um, at a somewhat later age. Um, but what was the appeal of linguistics to you? Though, though to be honest, Rosemary Orkin could make anything of teaching, <laughs> of course. Um, but I imagine there's more to it than just uh, an enthusiastic teacher. Yeah, I mean, my, to be honest, when I started doing the linguistics course, the first thing that I realized was my experience of becoming bilingual, of you know, being monolingual, learning Dutch age 10 um, was fascinating. And when I started taking linguistics, it really started to make me think about what my brain actually had to do in order to do that. And so I very quickly made a link between sort of neuroscience and linguistics from like, how does the brain do bilingualism perspective? Yeah. And that was what I wanted to do. Yeah. And um, uh throughout the neuroscience course and throughout the linguistics course, the main thing I was focusing on is second language acquisition and also like from a cognitive perspective, how that works. And um, uh, that's where that's where it started. And I wrote as many papers at UCU about bilingualism as I could, depending on the courses I was in. <laughs> so whatever course I was in, if I could wrangle the paper topic to be about bilingual processing, education, policy, like pro, um, production, whatever, then I did. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I sort of had a, a pretty early focus and it was because of this experience of becoming bilingual. Because you yeah. mentioned earlier that uh, when you were growing up, the idea was that you should speak only one language to your children, otherwise it would be confusing. The way you phrase it makes me think that that idea has changed by now. Yeah, very much so. Um, it's it was that was a very for a very long time. That's what we thought, or it's what people thought. But um, it, it turns out, if you look at research um, research now and from the past sort of two uh, and a half decades, that. Um, raising kids bilingually from birth is the best thing that you could do. Yeah. Um, it doesn't confuse them uh, and they will learn them both perfectly. There is a downside to it, which I think is one of the reasons why it still makes parents nervous, which is it takes about 12 years for kids to become fully proficient, like adult proficiency in both of their languages yeah. versus about seven or eight years for monolingual children. Yeah. 
but 12 years is a very long time to wait yeah. when your neighbors and your the other kids in your kids' class are already at adult proficiency. Yeah. And then you still have to wait another four or five years for yeah. your children to reach that language level. That can be incredibly stressful as a parent. And also if you have sort of under-informed teachers who aren't aware of these differences between kids being raised bilingually and kids being raised monolingually, that can put a lot of pressure um, on the children and on the parents where the teachers are like, your child is behind. Yeah. They need to be catching up when they really don't because they they will be there. Yeah. Uh, it's an it's like a almost automatic process. They will get there. Like their brain can't stop that process halfway through. Um it just takes longer. And so uh uh yeah, it just it just takes more time. Yeah. Um but it is best to teach them two languages from birth. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, so views have changed on that quite a lot. And I was fascinated to read about that and talk to my parents about it. Yeah. Um, uh, but they made the, the decision at the time based on what they knew at the time. Exactly. And That's all you can do. Yeah. That was all you can do. So, you know, uh, and it worked out fine in the end. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, things have changed quite a lot. It's a very fast moving field. Um, linguistics moves so quick. Um, and is so young, uh, you know, old research in linguistics is from the 60s. <laughs> well, in sociolinguistics, which is what I do, is is in the 60s. Yeah. That counts as out of date now. And was that sociolinguistics, was that also something you were already interested in, in at UCU? Or was that what your thesis was about? Or No, it wasn't what my thesis was about. Um, it was what Rosemary did. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in it because. Uh, what did Rosemary do? So one of the things that Rosemary did um, at UCU, which uh, I was involved in, was called the UCU Accent Project. Yeah. Where what Rosemary was trying to do was see whether um, over the course of three years, students who attend UCU start to have a sort of similar accent. So what we know from linguistic research is that if you put a bunch of people who all speak the same language uh, together in a community, yeah. um, then over time, their accents kind of converge yeah. a little bit. So they start sounding more alike. And this makes sense because the main goal of a community of people is to talk to each other and to effectively communicate. And yeah. so the more similar they sound, the easier that is. And so the hypothesis was, on this small campus, perhaps we can see evidence of this um, in like a sort of almost experimental setting. Yeah. Um, and so she made a lot of recordings of students at UCU, um, me included, uh, to listen to their speech. And um, a lot of people in my cohort participated in this research, and I thought it was fascinating. And um, it, I asked, it was in your first year you came in and recorded a couple of sentences and then again in your second and your third year to see how your voice changed over those years. Your language yeah, lesson. yeah. So it's uh, yeah, there were five recordings, um, two in the first year, two in the second year, one in the third year. Um, and it ranged this number of things that you had to do ranged from reading a word list out loud mm -hmm. to reading specific passages of text that had all the consonants and vowels in them to reading the Declaration of Human Rights in your native language and your and English 
to spontaneous speech. You have to talk about formal topics and about informal topics. And so from a linguist perspective now, as a linguist 10 years later, it's super exciting because that database is so rich and I didn't know this at the time, but she structured it so well. She picked such good activities for sort of for um, the students to read aloud that there's this huge variety of different styles of of um, of language in it. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's a really cool database. Um, Yeah, I I asked. hmm? Has anyone picked up that research? Well, or has unfortunately passed away, of course. Rosemary unfortunately passed away, and her collaborator Hugo Knee is um, uh, uh, still sometimes does some work on it. But mm-hmm. um, I have been talking to him recently, um, together with uh, two others, about um, picking it back up and. Um, continuing the work on um, making the recordings available because at the moment some of the recordings are available in a um, in a database but not all of them because they need cleaning they need to be sort of um, prepared we need to make sure that there's nothing in there that can identify who the speaker is that kind of thing Um, and so there's actually a decent amount of work that goes into preparing recordings to go public and to be used for research um, and so at the moment, the first cohort is fully available, yeah. but cohorts after that aren't yet. Um, and so hopefully in the next couple of years at UC, I'll be able to have some student research assistants who can help me to get this database fully online. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, that's the goal. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so happy to be back at UCU is uh, to be able to, you know, keep, keep going with this project. Yeah, that's brilliant. That sounds great. And it's, it's good to know that indeed it wasn't the end of the research uh, in the end. Yeah, I no, there's so much still to be done with it. And uh, but yeah, that's how I learned about sociolinguistics, because I didn't know what that was. But um, Rosemary was working on accents and on this sort of convergence. And that was my first sort of uh, introduction to what sociolinguistics is, the, you know, the study of how language works in social contexts, yeah. um, in different social contexts. Yeah. What I remember is um, that I had, was talking to alumnus at some point who had gone on to study in London for his master program, as many UCU students do. And he was talking to a professor there who basically five minutes into the conversation said to the student, you attended University College Utrecht, right? And the student was like, well, how do you know that? Like, I haven't mentioned that or anything. And the professor was like, I recognize your accent. Um, and that, that was sort of also one of the things that kicked off of, of the whole project, that externals who were in regular contact with UCU alumni actually recognized them through their accent indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super curious whether um, whether that actually ends up coming out of this database um, uh, or not. There's a few small studies that have been done that show some convergence in some ways and uh, not in others. And so it'll be super interesting to, to, to see what happens in the next sort of however many years. Um, yeah, I'm very curious. Um, it'll be really cool to see. Uh, to see if that indeed does come out of it. Yeah. Cool. 
Um, now, in itself, because you write yourself that your research is basically about approaching social linguistic questions using psycholinguistic techniques. Now, my own background is in economics, so what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, great question. So, um, basically, my kind of background in neuroscience and psychology meant that I wanted to stay on the brain side of things in linguistics. And so, where I eventually ended up was I started off being interested in bilingualism, which is quite broad. <laughs> um, and as I was doing bilingualism research, I, start, I found myself being more and more drawn to pairs of languages that were quite similar. Yeah. And so you can study the difference, or the bilinguals who are like English-Chinese bilinguals, for example, um, or you can study people who are English-Swedish bilinguals. Yeah. But the, the closer together these languages are, the more similar they are. This type of bilingualism changes a little bit. Like it can be harder in some ways to keep two very similar languages apart um, than two very different ones. And so I really became very interested in, in pairs of languages that were very, very similar. And in the end, started working on dialects. Yeah. Um, so I did like my UCU bachelor's thesis was about Dutch Twents, which is okay. a dialect of Dutch. Um, in the East and on sort of bilingual processing of Dutch Twents people versus Dutch English people. Yeah. Um, and this led me eventually to be interested in accents and in how we process the different pronunciations of words, um, but that mean the same thing. So this happens all the time, right? We meet people with accents all the time and they pronounce words in ways that we don't pronounce them but our brain somehow is still able to to understand them so for example if you meet somebody who's from the south of the united states and they say it's nine o'clock yeah we don't think they're saying it's time to eat indian flatbread <laughs> no right that's not where our brain goes it knows that they're saying nine even though they've said nine yeah but our brain doesn't have a problem with that yeah. And so I was really interested in how that works and in um, sort of how we, we sort of understand these different pronunciations. So uh, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and um, said, I want to do experiments that look at different pronunciations and how the brain stores and processes them. And um, Meredith Tamanga, who is a sociolinguist there, and Dave Embick, who's a morphologist who works on words and pieces of words, um, said, yep, no problem. That sounds awesome. And um, so for uh, my PhD, I started running experiments that test how people's brains store um, a very specific um, different pronunciation, namely the different pronunciation of the suffix ing. Mm -hmm. in English like so in English we can say yeah exactly I was walking to school or I was walking to school yeah and we use both of these all the time everybody yeah. who speaks English uses them both all the time but we use them in different contexts so walking is slightly more formal yeah walking is more casual um, and so our brain must have stored ing and in as pronunciations for this suffix yeah and somehow has some way of attaching the right one to the end of a verb in the right social, stylistic context. And 
I've been running experiments for four or five years now, uh, teasing apart how the brain has them stored. Does it store one of them? And does it derive the other later in processing? Or do we store them both separately? Do we just have two suffixes, mm -hmm. ing and in? Or um, is there some other sort of combination? Yeah. Um, and you can test that by making people listen to lots of words yeah. and recording their reaction times. Um, and that will give you sort of an insight in how the process works. How long does the processing take? Uh, yeah, and so that's how I sort of combine psycholinguistic methods, which are experiments that look at reaction times yeah. um, with this sort of um, like trying to study how the brain does basically social, yeah. socially conditioned linguistic stuff. Um, and what did you? What was your main insight from your PhD? Looking back on it, so um, at the moment what it looks like from the seven or eight odd experiments um, that are in there is it seems like we store ing as the pronunciation for the ing suffix yeah. and when we use in we derive it later in processing so it seems like we have one option as the default and yeah. we can derive the other later yeah. on um, that is what it currently looks like, and I've tried to find counter evidence against it, and so far have found none, uh, which is really interesting, and yeah. to be honest was a way more interesting outcome than I anticipated. Yeah. I wasn't sure I would be able to sort of get something that was as clear as that, but um, but yeah, so far I haven't been able to find anything against this theory, um, which is really cool. Uh, and um, is super interesting, although I'm still pushing to try and um, uh, find something against it because that's science. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's what came out of it, which is really interesting. And now the trick is to try this with uh, a different phenomenon uh, to see if it's the same for other pronunciations. So for other suffixes, for example. Uh, so that's um, an, a whole new set of experiments to run. Um, but yeah, you can't just test something on one phenomenon and claim it's universal. So exactly. uh, yeah, but I think my general, something I think is really important in this type of work is I care a lot about not making a claim that is too big. Yeah. So I really care about not saying this is a general thing. Yeah. I'm confident to say that this is how it works for Ing, but I'm not confident in making any bigger statements than that. Yeah. And I don't want to and don't think it would be right to do so. And so I don't, <laughs> um, which yeah. journals might not appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think is is good academic practice, or at least is the academic practice that I want to. Yeah. So and it's the most truthful, I would say. Yeah, I think it's very tough in academia because, um, you know, uh, the easiest way to get published is with big claims yeah, exactly. and with big findings, and so it's very attractive uh, 
to sort of try and make those on the basis of data that might not yeah. really be able to do that. Um, but you have to, to play in the, with the big guys, basically. Yeah. Um, but I don't feel comfortable doing that. And it's not a game I really want to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's naive, but that's how I feel about it. So, yeah. Well, change only comes by people acting differently. So that's certainly it's fascinating. Yeah. But you, cause yeah. you did your PhD in Pennsylvania. But in between UCU and your PhD, you were in Oxford for a little while, right? Yeah, I did a master's in Oxford. Yeah, that's right. So why Oxford and why then Pennsylvania afterwards? So I went to Oxford because they had an applied linguistics master's. And um, I thought that would be fun. Yeah. And it was. It was applied linguistics and second language acquisition. And at the time... I was still very much on the bilingualism train. Um, And so that was a a good fit for me. Um, And I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, It was a great time. It was a lot easier than UCU was. (laughs) So I had a really fun time enjoying the social spheres of Oxford, which are very good fun. Because we, we were uh, talking earlier before we started recording, and I think you mentioned that during your time at UCU, you were sort of constantly overwhelmed. Yeah. Which I guess it's something many of our students will recognize because there's just so much going on, both academically and socially at the same time. But so Oxford compared in a way that it was more relaxed or? A lot more relaxed. Okay. Yeah, I mean, UCU, UCU was really hard. And I think. I wasn't I wasn't an A plus student. I was, you know, I was an I was an A I was a B plus A minus student. Yeah. And I worked really hard and uh it was a lot. It was not easy and I felt overwhelmed a lot. I spent a lot of nights working late. Um I, you know, I've walked across campus at four o'clock in the morning from Voltaire to get home, having somehow half finished a paper. Um, You know, uh, it was really difficult. It was a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, at the time, I, you know, kind of resented that a little bit, too. Yeah. Um, Where I was like, this is so, so much work, surely. It's not necessary to do this much work um, to get the same learning experience. And then I went to Oxford and it was so easy. It was so little work. And I thought, this is a doddle. (laughs) This is great. To it, that probably depends on the program you're doing as well. Definitely depends on the program. Yeah. I do think also having then gone to the States, yeah. where um, a PhD in the US is basically a master's and PhD rolled into one. That's why it's five years. And so the first two, three years are coursework based. Yeah. And even there, I found it relatively easy to do, despite the fact that the material was very difficult. Yeah. I could keep up um, not without too much difficulty. And in hindsight, I 100% credit UCU with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've done anything that was as hard as UCU was since then. Yeah. And uh, I have benefited from it 
to no end. <laughs> it's been amazing. The amount of work that I did then has made everything easier yeah. since then. And uh, I'm very grateful for that, even though at the time I was not grateful for it at yeah. all. But uh, yeah, looking back, I am very grateful for the amount that I had to work at UC because yeah. I don't think anything will ever be as hard as that was. And uh, that's good. It's also, it comes at an age where there's so much stuff happening. You're independent for the first time. Uh, you have to figure out how to combine your social life with your work, with sports, with budgeting for yourself, cooking, cleaning, all of that. So there's so much coming together at the time that that makes it incredibly intense. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, for sure. And you don't really realize how much you're actually doing. Yeah. You just sort of keep going because that's all you can do. Um, but if I think back on the number of things that I figured out at UC, it's quite a lot. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's amazing to sort of think back on 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 how much uh, how much I learned about myself and about the world and about being an adult and uh, yeah. and also just general skills um, when it comes to talking, having discussions, having conversations with people who have different perspectives than you, yeah. um, you know, um, navigating, being on a committee and working together with people and doing a committee based budget and uh, uh, things like that. Um, but also, you know, social things like learning how to drink which yeah. is a skill learning. in itself <laughs> and you know learning uh, how that it's okay to not go to every party yes. and in the beginning I didn't understand that but I did by the end yeah. and you know you figure out a lot of things about yourself about okay this is how much I enjoy this and and then I'm good but yeah. I really value sleep and so I'm going to make sure that I get enough of that yeah. um, but it takes trial and error to figure those things out and um, you see is 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 one of the times when you when you do that yeah you get that opportunity as well yeah yeah but then it was very fun to go to Oxford where it's a very different social scene mm -hmm. um, but and I never really felt like I fully belonged there and I think a lot of people feel that way about it yeah. but it's very fun to pretend you belong for a year um and I thoroughly enjoyed that experience and I learned to row there and it was that's the best sport yeah. I've ever tried um and uh yeah I had I had a blast um I will say I took two gap years I took a gap year after UCU because I was so tired yeah and so I just thought I can't figure out what masters I want to do while I'm doing my UCU degree because it was just too much for me to think about that when I hadn't written my thesis yet. I didn't know how to do that. And so I didn't. And so I got myself a, a side job tutoring yeah. high school students in the year in between. And I went and traveled and backpacked for three months with another UCU friend. Um, and then I went to Oxford. And then after Oxford, I took another gap year because yeah. I didn't know how to apply for PhDs yeah. while doing my masters. Yeah. So I wasn't a good multitasker, but I think that was fine. And I learned a lot from yeah. taking yeah. those gap years. Um, and it also helps with not yeah. overwhelming yourself, but being able to give stuff the attention it deserves in a way. Yeah, definitely. And it really lets you calm down and sort of think for a second, you know, what do I actually want after yeah. this? 
And it's really hard to do when you're in the middle still of a program. Yeah. It's very hard to think about what the next step is when you are barely finished with the one before. Yeah. Um, and some people were able to do that, but I just wasn't. And yeah. um, I, I think that's okay too, you know. And it's excellent advice for third year students. Like if you're not sure and you find that being in the middle of that crazy tempo at UCU, you don't have the mind space to consider these things well, then then don't. Then take yeah. your time out afterwards. And, you know, as long as you can pay your bills, you can do whatever you want in a year, I would say. Yeah, um, exactly. And take yeah. time out and, and give yourself that space to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people know, some people don't, and that's perfectly fine. Exactly. It really doesn't matter either way. And it can be really good. You learn a lot in a gap year. It's not a year in which you do nothing. Nope. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's perfectly fine. And I highly recommend it to anybody who doesn't know or can't figure it out. Yeah. I don't think that's a weakness. It's uh, you just have a different path and that's fine. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, yeah. you'll probably make a better um, choice as well. Yeah, exactly. And you have a fun experience. I did my interview for Oxford for the Masters. I did the interview from a tiny internet cafe in the middle of nowhere in Vietnam because yeah. <laughs> I was backpacking. Yeah. And they emailed me and said, we want to do an interview with you next week. And I was yeah. like, uh-oh. I'm somewhere in Laos. Yeah. <laughs> How am I going to do this? And so I was in some tiny town and I went to the guy who owned the internet cafe yeah. the day before. And I said, listen, tomorrow I have a super important interview yeah. with Oxford. I have to do this interview in the quiet. Like I need no one to be here because the internet cafe was full of 10 year olds playing dungeons and not dungeons and dragons what's it world of warcraft yes. yeah, yeah yeah on really loud and i was like i can't do an oxford interview with world of warcraft blaring <laughs> in the room so the guy had it sort of it was like a dollar an hour was the yeah. price for the yeah. internet and so i said i'll give you 20 dollars if yeah. i can have the whole internet cafe for myself for an hour and the man was like yeah no problem yeah. so i came back the next day and he hung a door sign on the door that said closed yeah. and i got the whole internet cafe to myself and i <laughs> did this interview yeah there. and the interviewer was like where are you I said, <laughs> i'm in vietnam <laughs> it's really interesting linguistically yes <laughs> but, uh, yeah it was it was it was very funny and so uh yeah gap years are great you have whole experiences that you'll never forget which is always interesting absolutely and, and, and the good bit about traveling the part that i love the most is the unexpected stuff yeah you just have to roll with whatever comes in your path and make it work yeah that makes you more creative it makes you more flexible um and as a friend of mine likes to say it allows you to collect stories for your grandchildren so you have something to tell when you're <laughs> you're older um yeah it's good because you've backpacked quite a bit right yeah i have yeah my your favorite destination yeah oh that's a very difficult question um so my the the reason i backpacked a lot is that my parents traveled for about 13 yeah. years yeah. and they've traveled everywhere 
everywhere. They traveled separately too. They just went by themselves and then, and they didn't have any money. So they would like pick fruit until they had enough money for the next plane ticket. And then they'd fly somewhere else. And then they'd, you know, deliver newspapers until they had enough for the next. And so when I was growing up as a child, before we went to bed, they would tell us a story yeah. from their travels. And so I grew up every night with a different story from when they were abroad about, you That's know, brilliant. Yeah, my mum sticking a business card to the hotel wall for my dad to find later, or, you know, my dad getting pulled off a bus somewhere on the Chinese border and searched. And like, I grew up with all these amazing stories of all these countries. And so all I wanted was to go and do that. And so, uh, yeah, I backpacked a lot because that's what they did. And um, one of my favorite trips was to um to Myanmar okay because uh my dad went to then Burma yeah um 30 years before yeah and I went 30 years later and then did the same route in the same amount of time and so he took a train from uh Yangon to um uh, to Mandalay and he went to Bagan and so I went and did all the same things um but uh, all of this time later and it was so interesting and I took all of these photographs and it was super interesting to be able to talk to him about you know what it was like when he did it and what it was like now when I did it um and so I really uh I really enjoyed that it was so fascinating and so cool to see such a kind of um uh different country yeah um, uh, and to get these you know two different time point perspectives on it um uh yeah, which was just so much fun. Um, but yeah, but I also I also had a great time in Australia when I was there on exchange. Yeah. Um, I I was booking a flight to Australia because I got went to Sydney on exchange for UCU, and I realized that I could either pay something like fifteen hundred euros for a return flight yeah. or two thousand euros, but I would fly uh, Amsterdam, San Francisco, LA, Fiji, Fiji, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, Australia, Indonesia, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Dubai, Dubai, Amsterdam. Oh, brilliant. I thought, well, for 500 (laughs) euros, (laughs) that sounds like a good deal. (laughs) And so when I went on exchange, I was away for about eight months and I was in Sydney for the middle part of that but I spent two months before traveling around California and Fiji and New Zealand and afterwards went to Indonesia and Hong Kong um, and had an amazing time and learned so much about myself and what traveling is and how to backpack and um, how to be alone yeah which was a really interesting experience yeah it's very interesting sort of learning how to just be with yourself um, and not be in contact with people very much yeah um so yeah it was a really amazing trip to sort of yeah uh that was my beginning that was my first real backpacking trip yeah um yeah to get a little bit closer to today basically um you finished your phd about a year ago and yeah, spent five months in Nijmegen. Um, yeah, 
working as an associate professor in linguistics. And then the <laughs> opportunity came up to apply for a position at UCU, which is a combined teacher-tutor research position. Um, and you mentioned in the conversation we had earlier that UCU was sort of like, that's the place. That's where I want to work. What was the appeal for you? Why, why UCU? Yeah, I have always said while I was doing my master's and PhD that if I could ever work at UCU, that would be the dream. And I think it's a combination of factors. One of them is I really like the liberal arts and sciences mm -hmm. degree. And I really like the students. And I think as a linguist and particularly as a sociolinguist, like sociolinguistics is a very small part of linguistics that sits on the edges of lots of different fields. Yeah. So it's got a sort of neuroscientific component that I bring in from, um, from the psycholinguistic side of things, but it's also very closely tied to fields like sociology, like um, anthropology, um, uh, and uh, theoretical linguistics. And so there's, it's, it's very much a sort of bordering field. Yeah. And for me, having students in my classroom who are all doing different disciplines yeah. is perfect because yeah. that's exactly the type of students who I want to teach yeah. um, and who can bring this kind of nuanced perspective to sociolinguistic discussions that I enjoy. And um, so I always thought UCU students are like my dream type of student yeah. um, as somebody who you know, likes to approach things from different perspectives. That's the kind of students who I find really fun. Um, and so I've always thought it would be so fun to teach at UCU um, and have all these different students in the classroom who have different backgrounds academically, but also linguistically, um, who speak all these amazing languages and dialects. Um, so that was one side of it. And the other is that um, uh, I, think, I think the tutoring system is amazing and I benefited from it personally so much um, that I would love to be able to give back to the community um, and um, you know help other students to figure out their way like I figured out my way um, and I know how UCU worked I know what it was like to be a student there and to not know and to be overwhelmed yeah. and so um, it always felt like the right thing to do to go back to UC and help other students yeah. figure it out. Um, it feels like giving back to, to a community that gave me a lot and um, I really wanted to have that opportunity and so I'm so happy to actually have been given that opportunity so early in my academic career because um, it's really fun and um, yeah I'm, re <clears throat> I'm really enjoying it. And uh, I've already had a ton of fun with the first group of students who I taught linguistics to this past semester. Um, they were amazing and uh, uh, I had such a great time teaching them. And it really is sort of uh, confirmed to me that it was the right, the right thing and this is the right place for me. Uh, yeah, which is cool. Wow, well, that, that's a beautiful sentiment to end on, I would say. So thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you feel you're in the right place. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun to chat. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm always happy to chat. So if anyone ever wants to come and talk about gap years or whatever, feel free to come find me in my office. Yeah, 
look up her office on the website and as you heard she has office hours you're welcome to visit thank you so much <laughs> thanks